Well, welcome once again. Uh, it's a joy to be together to worship the Lord Jesus. If you have a Bible, let me get you to turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30 is where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and we will get one to you. Just raise your hand and uh, my wife or Sister Nicole will, will get one to you if you need one. And if you are new to the Bible, feel free to use the table of contents to, to find where we are. So if you're turning there, while you're turning there, I want to mention uh, just a few things just in, uh, as we gear up for next week and then the weeks ahead. So next Sunday, we're going to be starting a, a new sermon series, a mini-series uh, on the church called Marks of a Biblical Church. So next Sunday, we'll be starting a new series called Marks of a Biblical Church. And for some of you, this may be a refresher, right? For, for some of you, this may be new material. Uh, but we'll be looking in God's word at what makes a biblical church a biblical church, why it's important, and why we all need a biblical church. So that's what we're going to look at starting next week. And, and the fact of the matter is this is that you and I need a biblical church. Even if you're not a Christian, you need a biblical church. So join us next Sunday to learn why as we start to dig in what it means to, to be a biblical church more and more. So Mark 3, 22 through 30, before we dive in, let me pray a brief prayer before we dive in. Father in heaven, uh, thank you once again for this time. Uh, God, I, I pray that you would hide me behind the cross. I pray that you would increase and that I would decrease. And I pray, God, that um, your word will, will do the work in all of our hearts, however you see fit. Let that be so. And may you be glorified. And all that's done in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, reads as follows. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So this is God's word, family. Let's dig in. If you're taking notes, I have two points for you this afternoon. And so here they are, two points. Number one. Don't attribute Jesus' works to Satan's works. Don't attribute Jesus' works to Satan's works. We'll see that in verses 22 through 27. And then number two, the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. And we'll see that in verses 28 through 30. So one, don't attribute Jesus' works to Satan's works. Number two, the unforgivable sin. Number one, 
Don't attribute Jesus' works to Satan's works. Subpoint number one, the scribes say Jesus is possessed by Satan. Look back with me at verse 22. Here's what it reads. It says, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. So a brief recap. If you've been with us last week in our time together, we saw Jesus trying to get away with his disciples. But as he does, a crowd lurks around the corner. Every time Jesus is trying to get away, a crowd is always lurking around the corner. And as we saw last week, this crowd comes to, to follow him. As we saw last week, they came to follow Jesus for the wrong reasons. Not because he is Savior, but for all the stuff he could do for them. But Jesus doesn't let them distract or deter him from the mission. He keeps moving forward. Even when the demons see him and they start screaming out who he is, he silences them. Tells them to be quiet. And then he keeps moving forward in his mission. Then in verses 13 through 19, chapter 3, Jesus calls and appoints the 12 apostles. And then in verses 20 through 21, Jesus' family thinks he's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They, they, they think he's crazy for all the things he's been doing, all of the healings, the teaching, and casting out demons. They think he's crazy for what he's been doing. Then when we get to our passage this afternoon that we're going to look at, the scribes, they come down from Jerusalem. So the scribes were a group of religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were men who served as experts in the Jewish law. So they, they, they came down from Jerusalem, which wasn't a short walk. It was a hike for them to walk down from Jerusalem. But they came, and what they came doing is accusing Jesus. What did they say? It says, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he cast out the demons. So you might be wondering, who is Beelzebul? Who is Beelzebul who this text is talking about? Well, a definition from a commentator, he says, Beelzebul was the prince of demons, whose name could possibly mean lord of the flies or carrion. They basically say, this is what they basically say, they say, Jesus you're like Thanos. You're the prince of the king of everything bad, dark, and evil. And the works you do are empowered by dark forces, right? Your works are carried out by the black order. That's essentially what he's saying. So Marvel fans, you guys would have caught some of those references. But that's what essentially he's saying. He's essentially saying, they're saying that what Jesus is doing here is works of Satan. They're attributing the works of God, so all of the teachings he's been doing so far, all of the healings he, he's been doing so far, the casting out of demons, they're attributing all of those things to Satan. They say Jesus' works are the works of Satan. And you see that phrase, if you look back down in the text where it says, were saying, right? You see that it says, they were saying? Well, in the Greek, it means that they didn't just say it one time. No, they, they were saying it continually. This was something that they were continually saying. They were saying it consistently, constantly, and continually. They were speaking these lies against Jesus. And in doing so, they committed a grave sin. 
the worst sin. That's sub point number one. Number two, Jesus then responds with parables. He then responds with parables. Look back with me at verse 23, starting there, it says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what is a parable? A parable is an extended analogies used to make a specific point, right? That's what, you know, these parables are. They're like extended analogies or illustrations to, to make a specific point. So then what is the purpose and the point of these parables that Jesus is speaking? Well, well, Jesus essentially here uses them to show them how crazy and wrong their accusations really are, right? He uses them to make a specific point. And so that point is broken down look back at verse 23, he simply asks, he says, how can Satan cast out Satan? How can Satan, you're accusing me to be possessed by Satan, how can Satan cast out Satan? How is it possible that Satan can cast out Satan? And why would he even do that? Why would he even want to do that? Why would Satan cast out himself? which leads to the next analogy in the parable. He says, if a kingdom is divided, then that kingdom can't stand. And the next one is similar to that one. If a house is divided against itself, then that house won't be able to stand. So our house is uh, divided. Uh, my wife is an NC State fan, and I'm a Duke fan. And yeah, 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 go Duke. And for seven years, we're still standing by God's grace, even though our house is divided from NC State and Duke. It's only Jesus, only God, only God. <laughs> but obviously, this is different in what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is like, if Satan is going against himself, then he's divided. His whole camp is divided. Then in verse 26, Jesus then says, if Satan has risen up against himself, then he's finished. He's done. He's coming to an end, as the text says. It's like those big crime organizations, those drug lords who get big and famous off selling drugs and committing crimes. They're real selective, as you might know. They're real selective of who they might let in their organization, right? Because they want to keep the business safe. They don't want anybody to come in that might you know, get them in trouble. And most of the time, they only select family members to be a part of their organization. And, and their organization is built on loyalty and respect. Now, when one of them gets popped, not, not shot in that sense, but popped in the sense of busted by the police, some of them get nervous of the prison time the cops might be threatening them with. And then they turn into snitches. They start telling on one another. They start telling on the leaders. They start giving information over to the cops. And when that happens, 
an organization that was built, built on loyalty and respect, is now divided. Divided. At odds with one another. And usually, when that is the case, it's the end of the crime organization. That's essentially what Jesus is saying. He's essentially saying Satan wouldn't work against himself. And if he did, it would be a wrap for him. It would be over for him if he did. Unless it's not Satan working against himself, but someone more greater, more powerful. Look back at verse 27. It says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Satan in this illustration, in this parable, is the strong man, right? And the property consists of both demonic forces and oppressed human beings under his control, right? Jesus is the one who enters the house. He's the one who can enter the house. He enters the house and he binds Satan, the strong man. He hems him up and then he plunders his house. The word plunders means to, to, to use force to take something. Jesus comes in, and he, he takes, he plunders, he destroys the enemy. This is the same type of language used in military battles. You might know that. When one military would seek to defeat an enemy, they would enter their base, they would enter into their context, they would enter into you know, their context, they've done their homework, they've studied, they've learned how they move and navigate and so forth and so forth. They see the weak spot, and then they would enter, they would plunder they would bind the enemies, and they would take over, and they would plunder their goods. This is the same idea here that Jesus is getting across. As one scholar puts it, he says, the true explanation for Jesus' authority over demons was not that he was empowered by Satan, but rather that he had power over Satan. He wasn't empowered by Satan. He had power over Satan. This is what Jesus is saying here. Only someone more powerful like Jesus could overpower Satan, bind him, defeat him, and then also, guess what? Free those who are held hostage to him. Only someone as powerful like Jesus. Think about Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Or the verses that Sister Nikki read, Colossians 1, 13-14, it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus is the only one who could come in and plunder Satan's whole situation, blow it up, destroy it, and then also at the same time 
free those who have been held hostage to him. Amen? This is what Jesus has done. This is what Jesus is doing. Amen? So when we think about it, we don't want to attribute those types of works to the enemy. He's not powerful like Christ. And he's defeated. So the works of God should not, cannot be attributed to Satan. So that's number one. Number two, the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin. So subpoint number one under this. Number one, all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. Look back with me at verse 28. Here's what it says. It says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Let me just be clear on this. Jesus here and anywhere and nowhere in Scripture is encouraging you and me to go sin and blaspheme. So this is not what he's saying. He's not just saying, okay, all sins, they're going to be forgiven. And all blasphemies that someone might utter, they're going to be forgiven. So let's just go sin and let's go blaspheme. And all sins and blasphemies are going to be forgiven anyway. So let's just go do it. This isn't what Jesus is saying here. He's not encouraging it. He's actually giving us hope in knowing that all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. So the word blaspheme here means to speak and act in ways that insult God or lack respect for God. And beloved, we're all guilty of that. We've all blasphemed against God. We've all lacked respect for God. We've all said and lived in ways that dishonor him, that don't respect him. Jesus here gives us the best news in verse 28. He gives us the best news that we could ever read or hear. He says, first off, he says, truly I say to you. This was a, this was a phrase used by Jesus in the Gospels to, to basically say that his words are completely true and reliable. Not that he really needed to say that because he's God and everything that he said and did is full of truth and fully and completely reliable, but he does. And he says this with all sincerity, seriousness, and hope. He says, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is good news. This is the, the good news, perhaps, non-Christian. You didn't know you needed to hear this afternoon. This is the best news that you and I could ever hear. And this good news starts with God. It starts with God creating the heavens and the earth. And this God created everything. Trees, the birds, the stars. And he also created you. Every human being in his image and after his likeness created us fearfully, wonderfully made in him. We have gone apart from God. We have turned aside from God. And we've turned to our own ways, thinking our ways are best. And we've essentially sinned against God. And because we've sinned against God, we've, we've broken all of his commands. We've sinned against him. 
We've lived lives opposing to him and his ways. And because of our sin, we are due the judgment. Due the judgment that we deserve, that all sinners deserve because of what we've done against a holy, righteous, good God. And that judgment would be, if you were to die in your sins, if you were to die in your sins, God forbid, that you would be eternally separated from a God who made you to worship him, who loves you. And beloved, we don't want that for you. But the good news is this. The good news is that Jesus came, God's son, comes. He lives a perfect, sinless life in your place and in my place. Then he dies the death that you and I deserved on the cross for our sin because Jesus had no sin for which he had to die for because he's God and he's perfect, and he's holy, but he goes to the cross willingly and willfully, dying the death that you and I deserved. And he's buried in a grave, and he's raised on the third day for our justification, for us to be declared righteous before him. And he offers life. He offers eternal life to all who would turn away from their sin, so, so turn away from the things that God hates, and turn to him by faith, by trust, by belief, by putting all of your eggs in his basket, trusting in what he has done alone, solely to save you. And the Bible says once you do that, non-Christian, you can be saved. So this is what we want to offer out to you this afternoon. Don't harden your heart. Receive Jesus. Receive God's Son who came in love and died in love for you and for me. Turn from your sin. Turn to him by faith. Don't delay. Don't delay. Tomorrow isn't promised to you. The next second or minute isn't promised to you. And if you don't know him, if you were to die in your sin, you will be eternally separated from him. But trust in his son. Receive life. If you would like to learn more about that, you would like to learn more about what it would mean for you to trust Jesus for salvation, come talk to me. Come talk to me after the service. It would be my joy to talk with you. Talk to any of the Christians here at CHCC. Talk to the Christian friend who invited you. It would be all of our joy to help you start your journey with the Lord. In verses 29 through 30, we learn that Unfortunately, there is one sin that a person can't be forgiven from. Look back at the text with me. What does it say? It says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So let me break this down a little bit. Jesus is clear here where he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Never means never. That's what he says, right? So that's clear. You see it in your scriptures. You see it on the screen. That's clearly what he says, that whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So that's what he says. What does he mean? What is Jesus 
meaning when he says this. So why can't a person be forgiven of this type of sin? Look back down in verse 30 for the answer. That's what I love about the Bible. We don't have to look far. We don't have to look elsewhere. We don't have to look in us. We can look at God's word. And he tells us. He tells us right in the next verse. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You see it? It's because this type of person says that the son of God is possessed by Satan. It's because this type of person attributes the works of God to the works of Satan. And in doing so, that is blasphemous. That is blasphemous. That's the unforgivable sin here listed in the text. To attribute Jesus' works, what Jesus has been doing, all of what he's done, all of what he does, to the enemy, to Satan, is blasphemous. So just a few just applications, just a few points of application, just as we think about the un- unforgivable sin before we, before we wrap up. Number one. A true, genuine believer, a true, genuine believer cannot commit this type of sin. Why? Why can't a true, genuine believer not commit this type of sin? Well, a true Christian, a true believer will only attribute the works of God to God. A true believer will only attribute the works of God to God. Because we know that only God can raise dead men and women and bring them back to life. He can do that physically, and he can do that spiritually, as we attest to. Only God is the one who can heal the sick, raise the dead. Only God can do these types of miracles, right? So we would only attribute the works of God to God. But then to my non-Christian friends in the room, this is a clear warning. This is a clear warning to take serious in that, God doesn't smile at any sin. He doesn't smile at any sin. He doesn't kiki it up with any type of sin. And with this sin in particular, he does not play. It's not a game. As one scholar puts it, he says, this denotes a sin that once committed will never be forgiven and will condemn us eternally to hell, the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Or as one scholar, as he was quoting John Piper, Pastor John Piper, he says, if forgiveness is withheld for eternity, guilt is sealed for eternity. God is never neutral to sin. He either forgives it or punishes it. Not to be forgiven by God forever is to suffer his wrath forever. Ah, my my non-Christian friend, Jesus offers you forgiveness after taking the punishment that you and I deserved. Do you hear that? Do you see this? That Jesus offers you forgiveness this afternoon by taking the punishment that you and I deserve. Turn to him. And be forgiven. Don't harden your heart. Instead, hand your heart over to Jesus. Don't harden it. Hand it over to Jesus. 
And then to my Christian brothers and sisters, this is another, this is a warning to us too. That we must take sin seriously. That Christians, we must take sin seriously. Before you sin, think about what it cost Jesus, his life. It cost him his life. And he gave up freely, willingly, willfully for you and for me. So before you sin, think about how much it cost. Jesus paid for your sin and my sin in blood on the cross. Think about it. Think about that. Think about the consequences of your sin. That sin always hurts you and others. It hurts me personally. It hurts you all personally. It hurts others all around us. This is what sin does. It also saps your spiritual joy. It saps your spiritual joy. And it's never, ever, ever worth the guilt and the shame you feel after. It's never worth it. So flee from sin and flee to God. And at the same time, beloved, as we've been praising God throughout this entire service, as we've been praying, as we've been reading scriptures, as we've been dedicating babies, dedicating grace, as we've been doing all of this in light of who God is and what he's done, Christian, you have been forgiven. You have been forgiven if you are in Christ. Christ has already forgiven you of your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins. You have been forgiven. And when you do sin, it's not a matter of if you will sin. It's a matter of when you sin, because we're all sinful. We're still in this, this sinful world, in our sinful bodies. As Christians, we will struggle with sin. We do struggle with sin. But thanks be to God that we have an advocate, that we have an advocate that goes before the Father representing us before the Father. He represents us before the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the propitiation for our sins. He was the sacrifice for our sins. He was the atonement, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Amen? And he represents us before the Father. Jesus was condemned in our place, and in him there is no condemnation once you're in him. He was condemned, and in him there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Romans 8, 1, praise the Lord. So we want to be a holy and a healthy church, right? We want to be a holy and healthy people, where we confess our sins, as we've already been praying about, and as, as we've even done, as Brother Doug modeled for us, as we confessed our sins earlier in the service and prayed through those. But we want to do that with one another. We want to do that as a church with one another. And we want, you know, to do that with one another in grace and truth. And we want to then, as we do that, to remind one another of the good news as Christians, to remind each other, oh, Man, you have sinned. You have fallen short. We've all fallen short. Here's the good news. There's someone who didn't fall short. Jesus. He lived a perfect, obedient life in your place and in my place and offers you forgiveness. Don't run from him. Run to him now. 
continue to believe and trust in what he has done alone to save you, to win your freedom, to win you to God. We also want to be a place where we constantly allow the light of Christ to shine in the darkness. We want to be a place where we allow the light of Jesus to shine in our darkness and where we don't want sin Essentially, as even Paul says in Ephesians 5, we don't even want these things to be named among us. Because some of the things that we see in the world and things that we are, what we were once a part of, we don't even want these types of things to be named among us. So as a church body, may we continue to be that type of church that has a high view of sin, but an even higher view of God. So may we be that type of church, and may we continue to be that type of church. So when we think about the unforgivable sin, the unforgivable sin, which I don't suspect anybody in here has, I pray not, but the unforgivable sin is when you attribute the works of God to the works of Satan. This is the unforgivable sin. This is what's here in the pages of Scripture. Here's what Jesus says. Here's what he meant. So may we not attribute the works of God to the works of Satan. And may we, as a people, be reminded that God is a gracious and good God who forgives sin, who forgives all blasphemies that we have all committed. And he forgives us. So may we look to him, may we trust him for his forgiveness. As as the team comes back up, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the truth of your word. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to to walk through your word, God. And I pray, as I prayed in, the begin- prayed in the beginning of the sermon, that your word will do the work in all of our hearts in every way that you see fit. And I pray and know that that has been the case already, that your word has already been working in all of our hearts. And we pray, God, that you would help us to, to sit under your word, to submit to your word, to obey your word, to trust your word as the only reliable word and truth. When we leave from here, as we leave from this place, and as we go into the work week, we're going to be hearing a lot of words. We're going to be hearing a lot of voices. Help us to hear you in the midst of all of the voices that we might hear. Help us to follow your voice when there are so many other voices that might be trying to pull at us. Voices to sin, voices to doubt, voices, whatever the case may be, help us to hear your voice and follow after you and help us, Lord, as we get to come and drink from the wells of your water, as we get to eat from the bread of life every day that we open this book. Help us, Lord, to come to your book, to your word, knowing that every time we eat upon it, it's like fresh manna coming down from heaven and that it will satisfy us 
It does satisfy us. And it will sustain us. And it will keep us. There's no other word that will keep us. But your word will keep us. And so help us to look to your word and to adore your word. And essentially in adoring your word, we are adoring you. We want more of you. We want to know more about you. And not just about you. We want to know you. So we thank you, God, that we know you personally and that you are revealing yourself to others who may not know you. And so we pray even for those among us who don't know you that you would save them, that you would reveal yourself to them and cause them to, to live for your glory. God, thank you for how you've been moving in our service and how you've been working. And we pray that as we continue on, as we end, uh, that you will continue to be pleased and glorified. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.